and welcome to the 4.0 Solutions Industry 4.0 Community Weekly Podcast for Tuesday, December 6th. We are live. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. Um, I hope everybody had a great weekend. We have a really good podcast for you today. At least I hope you like it. It's going to be a tad bit controversial. I'm going to talk about some cool stuff, but um, go over some comments. Um, as you guys can tell by the thumbnail in the um, in the video, the title is "They Are Still Missing the Point," and that point is is that digital transformation is innovation. Okay, and today we're going to talk about some misconception stuff. Um, basic, the key topics here: um, announcement from Highbyte on version three. I'm going to talk about some new features. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, a, an article from the Sun paper that I posted, I tweeted about, and we had a discussion about on LinkedIn. It caused a, a you know a really good conversation on LinkedIn. Um, and then Alistair Gilchrist uh, emailed, you guys remember the guy who wrote the Industry 4.0, the book on Industry 4.0 and the Industrial Internet of Things. We had a, he and I had a back and forth last year. He has a new book that's coming out. Um, and he sent me a copy of it last night and I'm going to be reading the introduction and we're going to be talking about what's in that book and, and, um, some of the, some of the topics that he covers in the book. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. Obviously I have read a couple of the chapters, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you all the chapter headings and all that jazz. We'll have a conversation about that. And then I'm going to be answering some of your comments from previous YouTube videos and previous podcasts, but let's start with our. Uh, weekly announcements. So last session for MES bootcamp. So for those of you who are in our MES bootcamp, where we've been building a basic MES system with the core four capabilities, um, our last development session was this past Saturday. So it was session six. We originally planned on having five sessions. We end up are going to having having seven altogether, six development sessions, and we're going to be doing our Q and A this Saturday uh, for two hours, give or take. I'll go as long as I need to. So this Saturday, December 10th at 8.30 in the morning, um, if you're in MES Bootcamp, we'll be doing the Q&A. Uh, there was an action item list that came out of the Bootcamp session Saturday. Most of those items in that action item list are done. Uh, most of the development items, I, I will be doing a push. Um, I'll be sending you guys an email with uh, links for the database backup and um, the application backup for you to restore so that you can test through the end of the week. Hopefully those of you who are in bootcamp are continuing to do all of your simulation tests, uh, creating work orders, starting production runs, and then simulating values so that you're building, filling up your database with uh, event transactions so that we can run calculations and I can show you how to manipulate that with the Python package this Saturday. Wanna talk about the bootcamp thing here. We are gonna be doing an advanced um, course Originally, I wanted to do that in January. Uh, my, it, and we may still start in January, but it, it, the, the prior, we're doing a wide launch of step two for mentorship. So for those of you who are in mentorship, um, we're going to be doing the releasing to the wide audience step two on January 15th. So everybody who's in mentorship will have access to step two on January 15th. Um, our next mentorship session is this Friday. Uh, at nine o'clock. Um, but because we're doing that step two wide release, we're probably going to push out the 
boot camp uh, either to the towards the end of January, or the beginning of February. So we'll be doing a second MES boot camp, but it's going to be an advanced course. So we're going to be adding additional functionality to the existing MES system that we've built um, based on your request. So the features that you've requested, we're going to be building those over the course of four or five uh, sessions. We haven't clearly defined what the curriculum is actually going to be, but we will be doing that session um, in late January, early February. Uh, Mastermind, the next call is next Friday at eight o'clock um, in the morning. Okay. Um, earlier today, uh, I follow uh, Ishmael Hussein on Twitter and he retweeted uh, a tweet from Highbyte um, that said, awesome, great way to catalog and discover what data is available at a local site and see the data lineage while data is in motion. We'll try it out. Um, if you guys go to Highbyte's Twitter uh, uh, Twitter feed, they had a, um, a tweet yesterday that says, the rumors are true. Uh, Highbyte is releasing an MQTT broker with the Intelligence Hub um, in version three, now available in beta. Watch this short video by Highbyte CTO Aaron Semley to catch a sneak peek. I retweeted that tweet today and said, hey, everybody should watch it. So if you already follow me on Twitter, you can just click on the video there. If not, go find Highbyte on Twitter at, at Highbyte um, Inc. Uh, B-Y-T-E Inc. Um, watch that video. It's a great video. Um, I've been beta testing version three. I think Michael and I got copies of the beta uh, before Thanksgiving. So we've been testing it for a few weeks. I uh, love, so there's a new, the, the two big announcements are there's a new UI, uh, an improved UI, um, and then there's MQTT broker support. So they built their own broker from scratch with V3 and V5 support for MQTT. So uh, 3.1.1 plus version five support um, in their broker. And in the video that they post on Twitter, Aaron goes through, uh, he shows you how the broker works and he talks about some future uh, future features. One of the things is going to be is UNS um, a UNS client, so that you can browse your namespace with it from within the intelligence hub without having to go and use an external application to browse a namespace and look at all your current events. You're going to be able to do that within the intelligence hub in version three somewhere, not in the first release. Uh, we should see the release of version three uh, sometime in January, February. Right now, it's in beta. You can go download the beta. Uh, right now, if you want to test it out, um, I, you know, Highbyte is really coming along. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of meetings. A lot of people have asked me about Highbyte and, hey, you know, what's your opinion? Hey, listen, uh, Highbyte will be the fastest growing industrial platform in the world. And they'll overtake inductive automation as the fastest growing platform in the world. It won't take them very long, maybe another year, maybe maybe 12 to 24 months from now, they'll be the fastest growing platform in the world. Um, it's just an absolute certainty. The, the feature set that, that Highbyte, the intelligence hub is offering is a feature set that every single manufacturer on the planet who has any smart devices needs. So it's, it's not, you know, what share of the market that they have access to the entire fucking market. So it's, I mean, it's just basic math. If you compare them to inductive automation, not everyone needs inductive automation. A huge chunk of the market is going to benefit from getting ignition from inductive automation. The entire market is going to benefit from having high bite. There's not a single architecture we've designed in the last 18 months that does not include 
high byte in the initial iteration of the architecture. Do we always get to sell high byte? Of course not. Sometimes we're still jumping a hurdle, some objection, whatever it is. But those those objections are gonna are gonna be fewer and farther between. So check out that video. Highly recommend you. This is a big game changer. These are some major announcements that these guys have made. Some major announcements. We knew about the broker. Uh, we didn't announce it publicly until they announced it publicly. And so that's what we're doing. All right, uh, Josh, if there's any questions you want me to answer, flash them on the screen and I'll ask you to come back to them if I want, if I don't want to answer at that moment. But um, I wanted to say a couple of things before we get into the, into the content this week. Uh, you know, I was thinking about, um, I've been, I've been doing a lot of soul searching lately. Well, I, I guess I do a lot of soul searching all the time. It's sort of how I am, but, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, um, like social issues and political issues and economic issues. And, um, and, and the, and the topic that we're covering today, there was a comment when we did ESG last week, there was a comment in that YouTube video, um, that I'm, I'm going to read where, or actually, I don't think I'm going to read it. There was a guy who said, hey, listen, you know, you really should stay away from the political and social elements and just focus on the technology in a nutshell. That's what he said. I would love to do that. <laughs> I would love to just focus on the engineering and the technical. I, I'm not talking. I'm not bringing the social and economic elements in because I want to. I, I'm bringing them in because uh, I, we have to. Uh, they're, you know, because of the World Economic Forum and the focus on ESG with investors, at least the way it stands right now, um, these social issues are going to play a much bigger role in what we do as engineers. And we have to at least be aware of the conversation. We don't necessarily have to take a side. We don't have, you know, but we have to be aware of what the conversation is around environment, social and governance and what the agendas are. Um, you know, what the goals are. We have to be aware of what those things are. And we also need to be aware of what the pitfalls are. You know, if you're a digital transformation engineer, right, if you're doing, if you're a digital transformation specialist, you, um, you need to understand if somebody comes to you with an ESG mandate and says, hey, we're going to, we're going to, we, our goal is to get the highest environmental score on the, um, in the environmental pillar of ESG. And our goal is to get the highest social score and our goal is to get the highest governance score. In order for you to get those the highest scores across those three pillars, you will. that means that that organization is going to have to adopt certain ideologies. They're going to have to, uh, they're going to have to support certain social um, frameworks. And so you need to be at least be aware of that, right? You have to, you need to at least understand those conversations. So that's part of the reason we've been talking a little bit more about the social and political stuff. I personally think that the, I actually know that the, the social and political stuff, they, they're the things that change the most, but innovation is, is pretty linear. Like the social headwinds, the political headwinds, they change. They, they, they swing to the right, they swing to the left, they swing to the right, they swing to the left. Um, but the if you were chasing that target over the course of a 10-year period, your tack would, would adjust many, many times because they swing on a pendulum. But technological advancement, technological innovation is fairly linear. Like if, if your goal is to, is to go where, where, where what, what is possible takes you based on the technology, then you're 
your path, your arc is going to be pretty linear. And what I'm arguing is let's stay focused there. Let's stay focused on the art of the possible. Okay. Um, as opposed to uh, the reality of what's wrong. Okay. Um, but some basic commentary, some stuff that I had been thinking about. Number one, I can't stress enough the importance of being mission and values driven in this new economy that we have coming. Okay. Or actually the economy we live in right now. Um, and I'm going to talk here in a second about like the implications of digital transformation on the industrial economy. Okay. But I can't stress enough the importance of being mission and values driven. And the best way to illustrate this is this. I get, I get these questions all the time. Hey, you know, uh, Walker, so-and-so is, is uh, copying you. You know, so-and-so is using your language. This company over in Europe is using your language and they didn't attribute it to you, but they, they changed some of the things you said to sort of suit their own self-interest. And, you know, aren't you worried about that? And my answer generally is no. I'll, I'll call them out and I'll say, hey, that, you know, the way you're using the term unified namespace is not what I intended. It's not what it means. It's not, but I'm not overly worried about that. When they say, hey, somebody's copying your digital media, you know, they're they're shooting the same videos that you shoot and they're shooting, you know, doesn't that bother you? And, the, and what I do is I generally look and I go, what are their intentions? Like, do they, are they trying to make the world a better place? Are they trying to, you know, they have a grander mission, save and create middle-class jobs, you know, or are they just trying to make a buck? And the answer is, if I think they're just trying to make a buck, I don't think about them at all. Okay. I don't pay attention to anyone in the market who isn't mission driven. Um, and the reason why is, is our, the way that consumers buy, the way people decide where they're going to go work has changed. The, what has come what has come with affluence in the West is a lot of people are born on the second mountain. And if you haven't read the second mountain by David Brooks yet, please read the book. I reference it all the time. You know, they're basic, but in a nutshell, it's basically all people climb two mountains in their lives. The mountain one is, you know, you meet your own personal needs first. You uh, make your money, you get your shelter, you, you build up a nest egg you create your education, you start your family. And then and then you climb a second mountain. And that's when you use all the capital, all the stuff you've acquired for good to benefit the world. More and more people are born at the foot of the second mountain. A, bit, a greater percentage of the population is born at the foot of the second mountain. And they never have to climb the first mountain. And each year, more and more people are born at the foot of the second mountain. And so that means, in, in a nutshell, more and more people are born mission-driven every single year in the West. And so there are a lot of people, a, a huge, a, a, an enormous number of people who aren't going to work for an organization that doesn't share their values, is not going to work with customers who don't share their values, um, and, and I believe that if it, you know, I believe that if you're, if you're one of those organizations that's just trying to make a buck, you're just trying to come up with a new way of selling something to someone like that's your primary goal is you just want to sell stuff, move goods that you're, a you know, you're on the path to extinction. 
because what we do in the market has to be more than just selling something. And when I talk to my business development group all the time, I'm always telling them, don't actively sell. Solve problems. Solve problems. When you look at the other creators out there, when I, you know, I, when I list off the, the other influencers that I list, I watch, they're selling nothing. Right. You know, Tim Wilborn, who I, I absolutely love Tim Wilborn's channel. He did a thing the other day where I think he said he spent a week with high school kids teaching them about PLC programming. I don't know if it was a whole day or a week. I, I, I seem to remember it was a week, but maybe it was just one whole day. Uh, you know, Tim's Tim's channel is all about informing. It's all about educating people. If you look at Kudzai's channel, Kudzai's channel, the Industry 4.0 TV guy, he's all about informing. He's all about educating. It's clear that there's no quid pro quo. There's no strategic partnership. There's no conversation that went be, went on behind the scenes to promote someone's goods and services. The only time that we ever do a sponsorship here or ever try to steer someone towards a specific product is when we believe that that product is the best in class, the absolute best solution for the problem they've told us they have. And if we, and the, when you looked at the, the, the Phoenix contact PLC next part of the reason we did that whole arrangement with them was because the PLC next is a game changer. Part of the reason that we did the groove Epic, the Opto 22 groove Epic was the groove Epic is a game changer, right? It's a, a phenomenal platform. Absolutely amazing platform. And in fact, I had a great chance to meet with the team from Arduino, the Italian engineers from Arduino at the end of last week to talk about the new Arduino Opta, look at price points, look at the technology, talk to them about their mission. And you want to talk about a fucking game changer in terms of what the Opta is going to mean for unlocking dark data and facilities. And if you're not familiar with the term dark data, uh, the Opta, the Arduino Opta is a huge game changer. I mean, the price point for the Wi-Fi units, like $177 US. Okay. Uh, um, going to be IEC 61131 compliant. The, the licensing costs of the PLC software, the software itself is free. And then you're going to pay for a license by hardware type. So say I, I'm going to, I need to program for the Opto Wi-Fi. I'm going to pay like $17 or $20 for that license. Okay. So that I can actually communicate with the piece of hardware and download my sketch or program. Um, it's an absolute game changer absolute game changer, not even close. There's nothing in the market that's going to come even close to it. And then when you look at uh, Portenta Machine Control, which is the much more advanced PLC offering from Arduino, we're on the precipice. If you look at the release that we have coming from Hybyte with that, with, with you know, fully open technology, the, this broker, three MQTT3 and 5 compliant with all the connectors that the Hybyte Intelligence Hub offers you with modeling um, and data management and transformation. And then you take, and then you look at the new offerings that are coming from Arduino and you look at the price points of both. 
you know, you hear the terms about digital transformation, how they mean, you know, the democratization of data and the democratization of our economy. You know, the the opportunities are endless. And I want to I want to segue into a conversation here that I had with my team during the pre-production meeting. Okay. I asked Cheryl, Josh, and Jared, you know, what is the fundamental difference between digital transformation for industry, which is what we do, and and the and digital transformation for consumers? So how wh what were the three biggest implications of the digital of digital transformation for just regular consumers, people who buy cell phones and people who you know buy stuff online and people who drive cars and that kind of stuff, right? And we we whittled it down to basically three major implications. So number one, in addition to connecting all of us, what digital transformation did for consumers is you found you're able to find anyone who has a similar interest, a similar education level, a similar belief system and value system. You can find your tribe. Okay, number one. Digital transformation on the consumer side made it possible to find, to get connected to anyone and find your tribe, okay? It also made it possible, and this is part of, this is 1B, it made it possible for you to get anything anywhere, okay? And I, and I use this example, okay? This was the example I said. I said, think of the wackiest thing that you want to buy. Come off the top of your head. And we're talking about digital transformation for consumers. What was the implication? How is buying stuff today or being a consumer today different than it was in 1995? Right? In 1995, I was uh, 21 years old, I think. And, yeah, I was 21 years old in 1995. I was at the height of, you know, as a consumer, I'm the person everyone wants to sell to. Um Let's come up with the wackiest thing I want to buy. And what I said was, I want to buy a jar full of purple seashells. So imagine I'm in 1995 right now, okay? And I want to buy a jar full of purple seashells. It doesn't matter why I want to buy that. It just matters that I'm, I'm a potential buyer of a jar full of purple seashells. Without digital transformation in the consumer market, where do I get that? Well, the answer is, I've got to drive to a beach town. I've got to, or fly to one, I've got to walk in to a bunch of different stores, look on the shelves, hope there are jars full of seashells, and look for purple. Today, while I was having that conversation with them, like within 30 seconds, I just Googled jar full of purple seashells, and I found like 10 vendors who had them. And I could have ordered them and had them to me within 48 hours. So, that that one B is that we can get anything anywhere, and and digital transformation made that made that possible. Okay, um, I'm going to skip to the number three version. So there were really three, one, two, and three. I'm going to skip to three, and three was, um, do we have more or less goods and services available to us today than we did? in 1995, pre-digital transformation. So A, do we have more or less people selling goods and services? That was two, that's number two. And when the answer is more, we have way more. There are more side gigs of people in e-commerce 
than there were mom and pop stores at swap meets and and um, flea markets, that kind of thing. Um, in 1995 drop shipping wasn't even a thing in the in 1995 we, so we have a lot more people contributing to the economy people who are contributing goods and services moreover we have a lot more goods and services there are a lot more products available to us today and services available to us today than ever before and what you can do what you and think about it and this would be a great exercise is think about the total number of um commercial providers that you interact with in a year today so if you were to like go look at your credit card statements or whatever see the total number of vendors that you buy from so if you add up all the vendors you deal with at etsy on ebay on amazon um, and any of your other e-commerce sites plus all the various banks you're on you no longer have to use your local bank you know i use an online bank that doesn't have any branches called axos if you add up all those vendors and you compare them to the total number used in 1995, it's probably going to be a greater number by like a factor of four, right? Probably dealing with four times as many vendors, five times as many vendors as I ever I was able to deal with. And, and the advantage of that is that that's the democratization of our economy. I, it is much more likely that I'm going to be able to find the expert in the thing, in the, in the subject that is being sold to me. So I'm going to be able to find the bet best person who makes the best jar of purple seashells and I can buy from them and I don't have to just settle for the cheap knockoff crappy garbage bacteria infested one that I find at the one vendor who has it available to me. Okay. One of the things we talk about and when I say people just don't get it about digital transformation and innovation, some of the, one of the implications we never talk about that I'm going to talk about right now is that most people don't understand what digital transformation means for the industrial economy. And I use this example. When you walk into any manufacturing facility, you're going to ask a question. You know, you want to understand, tell me about the intelligence you have here, the hardware that you have running your facility. And you're going to say, what flavor of PLCs do you use here? And they're going to tell you, oh, we're a Allen Bradley house or we're a Siemens house or we're a, we're a Delta V from Emerson, right? You know, how many PLC manufacturers out there? There's a lot of them. There's uh, dozens of them. Um, but there's really like 12 major manufacturers, but 12 major OEMs. But the, the average facility is using primarily one flavor of PLC. And they may have some ancillary offline processes that have their own standalone. Oh, I got to back off over there or whatever, right? Why is that? When you ask that question, why is it that they've settled on one flavor, right? And the answer is a lack of digital transformation is the actual answer. Digital transformation is the answer to the problem. Why is it that they're, they're using just one flavor? Well, the answer is they have direct partnerships, with the vendors who sell them the PLCs. The people who do the buying want to buy, want the buying to be as easy as possible for them. So they want to call one number. They want to look at one catalog. They want to, they want to buy a known entity. The maintenance department that's got to maintain them wants to buy one set of licenses for the software. They want to send their engineers and their technicians to one set of training. Okay. 
the OEMs that write the programs want to be able to use the same program over and over and over and over again, right? Well, what happens, what happens, and if you look at what's happening here with Arduino, the implication of digital transformation, or if you look at Opto 22 that supports uh, 611.31 or, you know, Codasys, um, or Wago or any of the other PLC flavors that support um, PLC programming standards. So I can use, as long as I'm 611.31 compliant, then I can, um, you know, I can, my programs in theory, I can copy and paste, right? Uh, the answer is, is that digital transformation makes open, open standards much more possible. Imagine, imagine, or, or, or let's look at this. And I want to use one other example. The average manufacturing facility, how many vendors do they have? So, and you'll see, the average manufacturer will have a preferred vendor for something. They'll have a preferred systems integrator. They'll have a preferred uh, electrical contractor. They'll have a preferred mechanical contractor, whatever. Preferred IT services firm. And they'll have, and, and the only people who can work in that facility are the ones who are on these lists. Well, how is that, how is that what's best for a manufacturer when it comes to innovation? What if the preferred vendor isn't the one who has the expert you need? How do you, A, how do you know, but B, how do you get the expert in? And the answer is through the process of digital transformation. Through the process of digital transformation, you create minimum standards for your vendors. And any vendor who meets your minimum standards can do work for you. And therefore, you'll be able to get the expert supporting you that you need, right? Uh, I mean, why is it manufacturers don't use platforms like Upwork to bring in engineers? Instead, they go to systems integrators and they and they overpay for the administration of those integrators. And what and what is the traditional integrator, what value does the traditional integrator provide to the the end user when the only thing they're providing is the engineering? There better be some additional value you're getting from that integrator. For us, it's architecture. You have the best architects in the world come starting from me down. Um, you, you have mission, you have values. You have a methodology that's being used worldwide. So there's obviously value in going to IntelliC integration and getting those engineers other than just the labor that you get from those engineers. There's value you're getting. But there's a lot of and integrators that are doing nothing but just selling generic labor. And my question is, is why aren't the end users using just getting that labor through uh, a digital um, e-commerce market? And the answer is because they haven't digitally transformed yet. That isn't, a, that isn't the way the organization even thinks. One of the things that people just don't think about enough is what does digital transformation actually mean for the industrial economy? about where do we buy our goods and services? What, who, who are we plugged into? Who are we connected to in the supply chain? Who are our suppliers? Who are our vendors? Who are our customers? And the answer is our suppliers should be the best, the best supplier available for the problem that we have right now, not just the supplier that I have a relationship with. And the, and the labor, the vendor I'm getting expertise from should be dependent upon the specific problem I have at that time. And it, one of the big implications in the industrial economy is not just open in the technology, but open in the business practices. 
And, and I just don't think enough people think about that, you know, um, and I'm going to talk about this, this sun article here and, and put a bow on it here. So the other day, you guys will notice I, I tweeted, uh, the, the sun newspaper and Josh, I think will put the article in the, in the chat here. Um, sun did a, uh, posted an article about a recall from Tesla. Okay. And I'm just going to quickly touch on a couple of the points here. So the headline was total recall. Tesla recalls 435,000 vehicles over quote unquote defective feature that can increase a crash risk. And I wrote, I read the article and then I tweeted out and I said, this article should read, this is what digital transformation can do for improving products after customers buy them. At Cody Carlson, who's the guy who wrote the article, and The Sun need to do better. Industry 4.0 makes all this possible, and at Tesla is the leader. And I want to talk about how people just don't understand what digital transformation is all about. So the article says, um, Tesla has issued a massive 435,000 vehicle recall over a software defect causing specific models positions lights not to illuminate. Side rear or front marker lights that fail to activate lower an electric car's visibility to other drivers, increasing the risk of crash. Affected Teslas include 142,000 made in China Model 3s manufactured in from 2020 to 22, and 292,000 made in China Model Ys produced between January 1 and November 11th of 2022. No, January 1 of 2021 and November 11th of 2022. The SAMR's recall report read that for some vehicles within the scope of this recall, during the process of waking up from the parking state, the software of the vehicle's position lights may have an error when initializing internal parameters, resulting in the position lights on one or both sides of the rear of the vehicle not being able to light up. Now, the money quote here, really, the money quote is, Tesla will fix the potentially dangerous software defect through an over-the-air update, the state administration for market regulation reported. Drivers can now use their Tesla mobile app to download the new software for their car and from their phone once it's available. You can also just do it on the touchscreen when you sit in the car. The car tells you, hey, there's an update you need to download. Do you want to do it right now or do you want to schedule it for tonight? Elon Musk's electric car company previously required customers to enter their car and apply software updates through their car's touch display, which in my opinion is the best way to do it. I, I actually don't do my software updates from the app. It marks the 20th recall of the year for the troubled car brand and is the second China recall that Tesla has issued recently. Musk's company recalled 80,000 Model S, Model X, and Model 3 vehicles last week over software and seatbelt issues. Only 16% uh, of the 80,000 Teslas recalled last week in China are going to need a service center visit. What that means is 84% can be updated without, you know, remotely. All right. Um, let me see. Yeah. All right. My point here is this, is that that article is positioned to make it sound like Tesla is a troubled car brand who makes garbage, right? And I read that article and I think, first off, Tesla has the highest profit for per vehicle in the world, 
at six thousand or whatever the number is, six thousand dollars a car. And I think Tesla's or Toyota's number two, and their profits like half what Tesla's is. Tesla is far from a troubled car brand. Okay, uh, they're they're the gold standard for how all auto manufacturers should operate. If you can if you can fix the problem in a car where eighty four percent of people don't have to go to the service center, that is not a fucking problem. That is innovation. People just don't understand that digital transformation, a, a component of the fourth industrial revolution, is that you make products that get better after you buy them. That's baked into the process. When Toyota used to ship a car or General Motors used to ship a car, it was good luck unless we find something that's going to kill you. And then we're going to bring it back here. It's going to sit in our, it's going to sit in the parking lot for five days. We're going to have it in the bay for another five days. We're going to give you a piece of shit loaner if we have any of them available. Okay. We're probably not going to fix it on the first try. We're going to find another $20,000 worth of repairs we're going to want you to pay for. And you got your notification on the recall through a fucking letter in the mail. I find out about a problem in my car that's going to be fixed because Tesla found out about it and they sent me a notification on my phone and they gave me a nice little easy pop-up on the screen that I just got to say, download it right now. Now you tell me, how, how is that troubled? And I want to I touch one other piece on this. There was a huge debate in LinkedIn about are recalls bad? I'm going to argue that whether or not re recalls are bad are a function of two things. Number one, is it a, manic, a mechanical recall? Okay. That is, does it impact a physical component that you're going to need to update? Okay. And number two, is it, is the mortality rate, uh, the implication of the mortality rate super, super high? Okay. This article shows that either Cody Carlson has an agenda or he doesn't understand what digital transformation actually means. This actually should be a celebration of what digital transformation has done for consumers and Tesla's leadership in taking the what is possible to the masses. That's what this article should say. But instead, it is it, it makes it look like this is a real big problem, and it isn't. And all of you on here, the engineers and the software developers we have on here, all understand that you cannot write, no one can write flawless software. The software development lifecycle contains two elements in it that are always true and never go away. Number one, debug and maintenance. That's what software, software updates are. It is debug of code and pushing the maintenance of that code when we debug it. And that is just going to be the more digital we become, the more a part of our life that's going to be. I have a Bluetooth speaker right now. I have a Bluetooth speaker at my house. And that and uh, and it's a cheap one. It's like an eighty dollar Bluetooth speaker that I have my Apple TV connected to. I just bought a garbage one. I didn't buy like a Vizio one that connects to Wi-Fi or a Bose that connects to Wi-Fi that could get over the air updates to the firmware. One of the flaws in the firmware in my Bluetooth speaker that I have in my house right now is occasionally the Bluetooth three connection will stop allowing the volume control to be passed through the Bluetooth connection to the speaker. So occasionally when I'm raising and lowering the volume, the volume actually doesn't go down. 
and I have to unplug and re and replug it in and restart it. And the only way I can push a firmware update to my speaker, that's the only way to fix it. And it's been fixed by the manufacturer is through a USB connection. I have to, I have to literally plug my speaker into my computer and do it that way, not over the air. Okay. Am I going to go fix that speaker? No, because it's too, it's a pain in the ass. It's going to take me a lot less time to just unplug it and replug it back in than it is to take it out to my computer, hook up the USB, deal with all the connections. That's the difference here. There's, there's very little that can go wrong with a Tesla car because they're a fully digitally transformed company that they can't fix remotely because they're connected to it. All right, Josh, any comments, questions, concerns? Legacy notification, like you mentioned, will be typically managed by keeping your fingers, fingers crossed. Yes. Digital transformation in practice means challenging the status quo in your job daily. It doesn't matter what department or function you work in. This is why Amazon was first called relentless. Yes. And in pro DJ equipment, the industry standard is Pioneer DJ. It never gets better once you have bought it. And Denon DJ updates come very fast and functions are added. Same story in lots of places. Absolutely. What you guys have insight into truly digital companies. And we're going to talk about Alistair Gilchrist's new book here. I'm going to talk, walk you through all the chapters and stuff. And I, I've had a chance to read a couple of the chapters just quickly to like prep for the podcast. I'll have a much more comprehensive response next week. But Alistair covers in his book um, some of the challenges of Industry 4.0 and like why failure has been so broad. Most organizations are failing in their journey in that first iteration. And he talks about it in the book. Uh, and I, I have like a word version of it. I, I don't have, he just, he's actually sent me the raw version of the book. And, um, and I'm going to talk about that here uh, in a second. Most of the time when someone says to me, you know, let me say this. If someone says to me, you know, uh, I don't, I don't understand why Tesla is a valuable company. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, they're overpriced. They're this, they're that. That person is literally telling you they don't know what they're talking about. That you you need to re they have no idea what they're talking about. You should ask them, tell me why. You know, the, the cryptocurrency th thing. Uh, you know, Zach, Zach and I used to talk about crypto quite a bit, right? And and Zach was absolutely adamant that crypto ha had <coughs> was gonna replace fiat currency. And I didn't really have an opinion on it. I didn't know enough about it. So I, you know, started studying blockchain and crypto and, you know, what were the issues going to be here? And what I saw was, well, if you have fully decentralized currency, anybody can create it. Okay. Um, so then how do you know what the actual value of your currency is? When I talked to all my financial advisors, and I have many, 30, more than 30 financial advisors, 36 at the time, I don't know how many I have now, but all 36 of my financial advisors told me not to fuck with crypto. Like every single one of them. They said, if you want to, treat it as gambling. Speculate and gamble. And when I asked them why, they said, well, because there's no inherent value in crypto. Like our fiat currencies are in theory backed by the value, the global domestic product, the value of the country that backs the currency. So in theory... That value is, while abstracted, 
it is it's inherent just like it, when it was the gold standard it was based on the value of gold there's no value inherent value in crypto i mean just look how easy it is to lose your digital wallet so i didn't really fuck with crypto because the fundamentals didn't make any sense to me uh, it doesn't mean i don't own crypto i do but i didn't mess with it as an investment i messed with it as a speculation the same it's the same thing in digital transformation when i when i when a new company comes to me and they give me a you know they're giving me a reading me the riot act how great their new product is or you know what i'm really asking is is does this organization pass the sniff test like are you are you gonna are you using technology to automate business decisions are you using technology are you working towards using machine learning and artificial intelligence to find patterns and data you can't see in the naked eye with the naked eye or are you just trying to solve a list of use cases are you in the are you actually asking yourself do you have a digital strategy and are you actually saying this is why we want to be a digital company and here's how we're going to make products that get better after people buy them because if you're not if you're not one of those companies you're going to die because every product every product is going to be a product that gets better after you buy them even consumables they may not push software updates to consumables but they're going to collect data about consumables and they're going to do it through vision i mean that's what's going to happen let's talk about the fifth industrial revolution we'll go to and then we'll get to alistair's book what is the fourth industrial revolution you know our de definitions here it is it is industry 4.0 and fourth industrial revolution are interchangeable alistair gilchrist and i disagree on this i say the reason they're interchangeable is because the eu made a mistake of using industry 4.0 as the term and it's too close to fourth industrial revolution and therefore the two definitions have become conflated and there's no way to undo it so when you say industry 4.0 you're talking fourth industrial revolution what is the fourth industrial revolution? It's taking all the data that we've created during the third industrial revolution to automate processes, industrial processes, and we're taking that data and information and we're converting it into information to automate business decision-making. That's what it is. Okay, that's what the fourth industrial revolution is. It's the achievable goal is to automate decision-making. Okay, what is the fifth industrial revolution? Well, People will say it's about people, and it is. It really is. It's augmented reality. Very, 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 here is the future for us. It's a heads-up display where we are both in the digital world and we are in the real world at the same time. That's the fifth industrial revolution. The ability to see digital data and information overlaid on top of the real world is the fifth industrial revolution. So when I'm going in the grocery store, think about how much more efficient you're going to be. If you go in the grocery store and every person who walks by you, you can see their Instagram, LinkedIn profiles, whatever, and you know where they work, what they do for a living, all that kind of shit. And is this a person I should invest a conversation in? Um, you know, think about the implications for dating, right? Um, that is the future. Think about the implications at work overlaying digital data and information on top of the physical world that's the fifth industrial revolution making people super people okay some harsh realities that most people just don't want to hear okay right now if you have an iq of a little over 70 
you are employable in our current economy. That is, and we're talking, I'm talking about the, the industrialized Western economies. If you have an, an IQ a little over 70, you can get a job. In a very short period of time, likely in the next decade, that number is going to move from the low 70s to the low 90s. So everyone who has an IQ in the, the low 90s or below is going to be unemployable in the West. About half the people, by the way, about half the people will not be employable. So the only people who are going to be, quote unquote, working are going to be the people who have IQs high enough to plug into a digital world and create value. And the other half are going to be taken care of through um, um, UBI, universal basic income. That's an absolute certainty. It's going to have to happen. Okay. Those are the implications of digital transformation on the economy. And, and if you as an, as an engineer, if you as a digital transformation specialist, you as a business development person, you as an executive in this world, if you don't understand where we're going, I don't understand how you're making decisions in an informed manner. If you don't understand the direction where we're going, okay? All right. Which is the reason I bring this stuff up. All right. Let's talk about Alistair's book here. So Al, I'm going to read the introduction, actually. Um, I, I think it's great. Um, it, for those of you that don't know who Alistair Gilchrist is, he and I had a, a he was on the podcast last year sometime. Um, he and I went back and forth. I mean, you know, butted heads and the whole deal. Um, I have a lot of respect for Alistair. I loved his original book. He wrote a bunch of books, but the industry 4.0 is the book that I read. I, it's recommended reading for all people. I don't agree with everything that he has in there, but I think that perspective is what needs to be. Everyone needs to understand that that perspective's out there. Anyway, he just wrote a new book that's coming out and he sent me a copy of it last night. It's called industry 4.0 sucks exclamation point. And then it's renegade spray painted on the cover and then it says the fallacy for real fantasy, fantastic fictions and flatulent fibs fueling the fabrication of the fourth industrial revolution by Alistair Gilchrist. Lots of alliteration there. Right, I'm going to read the intro introduction. Why industry 4.0 sucks. Renegade. Uh, it was the purpose and the enemy that reveals the fallacies for Bill fantasies, fabulous fiction and flatulent fibs that are fueling the feeble fabrication behind the fourth industrial revolution. I strongly recommend that you do not undertake an industry 4.0 journey or even a pilot project before reading this book in its entirety, or you will surely fail. Well, 99% of the time. Why? Because industry 4.0 seriously sucks. The fantastic fiction, which is fueled by flatulent fibs, has propagated across the consciousness of many a dim-witted technology expert for almost a decade now. It is no wonder that we do not have advancement through a synergy of business and technology, a unified purpose and consensus of ambitions and objectives. Instead, we have chaos. But what can we expect from such a poorly defined entity if we do not agree on the definition or destination of our journey and how we, how can we ever hope to arrive at the same place? Well, I would argue we're not arriving at the same place and we shouldn't be, but I've been heavily involved with manufacturers, industries, and universities in researching industry 4.0 
from a theoretical, academic, and practical perspective. I have always been intrigued by the manufacturing phenomena that is Industry 4.0, so much so that I wrote a best-selling book, Industry 4.0, The Industrial Internet of Things. I was so impressed, I bought into the promise and seemingly endless potential with great gusto. The future seemed bright, and Industry 4.0 was the future. Time and tide would take me to other shores and different work in cloud architecture, but I always tried to keep up with Industry 4.0, or so I thought. When I revisited my old haunting ground earlier in 2022 with the full intention of updating and revising my earlier book, which was published by Springer in early 2015 with a new revised edition, I was in for a surprise. What I discovered appalled me. Industry 4.0, once the proud and enviable flagship policy for European manufacturing and the inspiration for many an Industry 4.0 initiative around the globe, was now a shambolic, derelict town. Not only was its very name misappropriated and used as a soulless, generic label, leaving it eviscerated of all concepts, principles, and purpose, it is now a meaningless synonym for the equally vacuous buzz phrase, the fourth industrial revolution, a zombie. In this book, I will detail how and why it all went wrong for Industry 4.0 with quantifiable and documented evidence of its cathartic collapse and at whose hands. I will explain the very avoidable reasons behind the staggering failure rate. Indeed, just over 1% of those who embarked on the journey were able to claim a return of any value in the form of productivity, efficiency, customer experience, supply chain integration, smart factories, or embarrassingly, any value at all. And let me do a little side here. That I don't know where he's getting that 1% number from. My guess is from the EU, which has probably had the worst um, success rates um, even though they wrote the standard, the worst, and I would argue the reason they had the worst success rates is because their standard was garbage. But that 1% is not the number we, we see. Uh, the number we see is most manufacturers, about 80% of manufacturers fail in their digital transformation initiative in the first iteration. So that is their first bite at the apple. They fail and they fail because they don't have a strategy. They pick the wrong strategy, the wrong technology, wrong partners. There's only three reasons why they fail. Okay. Um, but a little aside there, I don't know where he's got that 1% number from, and I'll, I'll have to look in the, the notes. Um, staggeringly, very few of these desperate heroes managed to wrinkle out any sort of a return on investment in the EU, the UK, India, China, and even the US Industry 4.0 has failed. I don't know how you could say Industry 4.0 has failed in the United States. If you, all you have to do is really start at Amazon and work your way down through their supply chain, start with Tesla, work your way down with their supply chain, and you have the model for success. If you look at Volkswagen US versus Volkswagen um, Europe, the success rate, is, it, it's absurd, like the, the success that Volkswagen's seen here. There are many examples of Industry 4.0 succeeding here in the United States. Uh, and so I don't know if I necessarily agree with that statement, but I understand his sentiment. The EU Commission in 2021 branded Industry 4.0 unfit for purpose and one of the root causes for many of the problems society faces today, such as technology monopolies and giant wage disparity. This was coming from Industry 4.0's sponsor and authors. So obviously, because they were wrong in 2011, I'm obviously going to trust them in 2020 when they were so cataclysmically wrong with their original um, standard, which 
by the way, I wouldn't have agreed with in 2011 anyway. I thought that it was ideologically driven and completely uh, fucking useless. How anyone believed that digital transformation, that industry 4.0 maturity starts with computerization, okay, that that's the first step in maturity is a fucking moron. How How does anyone not understand that without first changing the mindset, doesn't matter whether you're computerized. Education is the first step, which is why we spend all this time doing this content. By the way, if you look at adoption of Industry 4.0 in the United States, I'll guarantee that we can trace so much of the successes back to our efforts and the efforts of this community to educate people on what Industry 4.0 actually is. But again, his point is is taken. The sentiment, I understand. Um, We're almost done here. However, Industry 4.0 was not a technology. It was a policy supported by a robust strategy. If it failed, it was due to human ignorance, hubris, and greed rather than any inherent technical deficiencies, albeit it was rife with contradictions, ambiguity, and confusion, certainly of its own making. But Industry 4.0's failure was a failure of business, technology, and consultancy hyperbole, not of its inherent framework or policy. And I agree with him there 1,000%. But all is not lost. There is still hope that Industry 4.0 is redeemable, and I agree. And as such, I propose some tried and tested methods that are leached from those that have found value in their journeys. And I'm hoping he's talking about us. These are not best practices as as every journey will be unique, but they are proven practices that could help you avoid the all too common mistakes and missteps that plagued Industry 4.0 from the outset and that still prevail even today. Forewarned is forearmed, and this information will greatly assist you along your own Industry 4.0 journey. There is little to no consensus on the provenance of Industry 4.0, let alone its definition. I have strived in this book to detail its history so that we can at least start with a common reference point. If there is one definitive characteristic of Industry 4.0, it is ambiguity. That lack of clarity sets it aside from other policy and strategy statements for manufacturing as a world-class solution. Instead, it's an enigma. It's a beehive of contradictions and encourages the fuzzing thinking that sadly defines it. And I'm going to quickly run through the chapters. So he's got chapter one, a connected world, um, a futuristic smart world for everyone. Chapter two, the advent of the smart factory with the driver behind smart factory, today's smart factory and smart products. Chapter three, flatulent fibs of the fourth industrial revolution uh, with the fourth industrial revolution's provenance why Industry 4.0, Chapter 4, Provenance of Industry 4.0, What is in a Name, The Digital Future, A Troubled Relationship with Industry 4.0, Platform Industry 4.0 Made in Germany, Industry 4.0 Success is Elusive. Chapter 5, Chaotic Climb and Cathartic Collapse, so the climb of Industry 4.0, Concept to Reality, Industry 4.0 is Born, Uh, Misunderstood Principles, A Holistic Approach to Industry 4.0. By the way, I read quickly read the holistic approach. Agree with most of what he's got in there. Um, chapter six, why industry 4.0 super sucks for SMEs. <laughs> chapter seven, born in the USA, industry 4.0 light. And uh, chapter eight, a pesky productivity paradox. Chapter nine, the fabrication of fabrile fallacies, fabulous fictions and flatulent fibs. And he's got about 25 fallacies in there. Chapter 10, business, not technology, drives success and failure. Um, Chapter 11, the global economic and social impact. And chapter 12, the digital transformation dilemma. 
13, simplification belies complication, and 14, catastrophe, chaos, and commotion and contradiction. I'm going to jump up here. There's one chapter I read in here about MQTT and single source of truth. So far, everything I've read, I, in fact, Cheryl will attest, I was reading one paragraph uh, like online with the team, and I was actually, I was like, fuck, man, that's really profound what he said right there. I agree with him 100%. And what he said there, that was fucking profound. It actually floored me. And I like got really silent and had to think about it. Um, so I'm excited to read the whole book. I have no idea what the actual direction is. What I will say is I did read the chapter on MQTT, single source of truth, single version of the truth. And there were, if I had him on the podcast, I would say, hey, I think there's a misunderstanding of how MQTT is used in an organ in a in an industry 4.0 infrastructure as, as part of the architecture but what i will say is this is that i'm going to read the whole thing uh this week i'll i'll talk about it next week it so far what i've read it certainly should probably be required reading for everyone um he, he in a nutshell what he's saying is is that leaders approach the problem wrong that's what he's saying that they approach the problem wrong. They approach it as a list of use cases instead of looking at it as a as a strategy. He doesn't use the term strategy. He calls it framework, but he uses the term strategy in there. I'm I'm you know I, I like what I've read so far. Uh, I like people who are combative and you know all fired up and shit. So um, you know I'm I'm looking forward to to reading the whole thing. Um, man, I really wanted to go over. Uh, comments from the videos i didn't know i didn't know i was going to talk this long so uh josh any comments or questions i should i need to answer what's your opinion on china and the new global factory economic initiative um honestly uh i think china is going to is going to be faced with revolution i mean let's talk about the socio-political com components I don't know how Z G is going to navigate that. I would expect, um, you know, it looks like Apple's going to pull a lot of their manufacturing from China and focus on Indonesia and Vietnam. I think that that's going to become more the rule than the exception. Um, I think China is going to play a, a much smaller role um, because I just don't see how the CCP is going to relinquish social control over their people. I mean, what's going on in China right now is fucking 1984 shit. It's crazy. <clears throat> I mean, crazy. I mean, they blurred out, you know, during the World Cup, they blurred out the, you know, people in the stands so that the fans wouldn't see that they weren't wearing masks because in China, they have no idea that the rest of the world is, you know, moved on from COVID. Um, the, um, I think China is going to play a much, a much smaller role going forward. Um, and I think companies like, I mean, you know, let's talk about this real quick. Um, I, I, I think some of the working conditions that people work in globally um, are appalling. And, um, and, and a lot of those really shitty working conditions are in China. Now, I've worked with a lot of American companies that have manufacturing operations in China, and I've been to many manufacturing facilities in China, okay? Um, 
the clients that I worked with, I never once went on a manufacturing campus in China and thought, oh, this is a sweatshop. Like I never felt like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Uh, there were things about it that I thought were really weird, like people living in dormitories at their job. I thought that that was odd. Uh, seemed almost like a work camp as opposed to, you know, a place you go to earn money. But the working conditions that I observed in manufacturing facilities in China, I didn't see anything that I thought was like slave style work. Okay. Um, and the people that I talked to, um, and I had a chance, I spent, I've spent a lot of time in China in manufacturing facilities, you know, great people, amazing people. Um, that being said, we're a values, we're a mission-based organization. We're a values-based organization. And we ask questions of our customers to figure out what they think about humanity. What do they think about people? And the companies I went to China with are values-based companies. So, I mean, they genuinely, truthfully, honestly care about their people. They see industry as a way of lifting people out of poverty and sustaining the middle class and the upper middle class. But that's those are rare companies. That's one in 12, you know, because we only work with one in 12 companies that come and ask us to work with them. So any other questions, Josh, I need to answer. I can answer the economic initiative next week. All right. Um, uh, have you read the the new Ray Dalio book? He says that China is taking the USA position in the long term. No, China will not take the US's position in the long term. And the reason why there's a fundamental problem in China, there's a fundamental issue, right? You got to go, go to the fundamentals to get away from the noise. And the fundamental issue is that the people who run the country have no respect for the people who live in the country. And say what you will about politicians in the United States. Mo everybody, most people who end up in Congress go there to change the world for the better. They get corrupted on the, on the journey, but they go there to change the world. They have respect for the people in their districts. They have relationships with the people in their districts. I've, I've, I've worked with lots and lots of politicians in the United States. They really care. They love their country and they care about their people. They do. It, I mean, as, as cynical as we are here in the States, you know, it's, it's, it's still true that most people go into politics to have a positive impact. And no, China, China will not. China has a revolution issue. China has a revolution issue, a social issue. Any other, Josh? All right, next week, I want to, I, I definitely want to touch on these comments. I hope to have more on Alistair's book. I, I couldn't find it on Amazon. I saw he announced it on LinkedIn. I'll send him an email. I told him I was going to mention it on the podcast. I'm sure he'll probably comment. Um, I haven't spoken to him in a while. I know he sent an email to the team. Um, couple weeks ago or whatever, but the book looks fascinating. Um, you know, what, what I want to leave you guys with is this, you know, the implications of digital transformation, our economy is going to change. Our society is going to change for the better. Okay. And if what you want to do is get the biggest bang for your buck on your journey, you need to be talking to people about values and mission. You need to understand why it is people are embarking on their digital transformation journey. Why are you even bothering? What do you believe? Because guess what? Half the people on this planet are going to have to take care of the other half. 
And that's an, that's an empirical certainty. Half the people on the planet will not be employable in a fully digital world. Think about that. By the way, why did Germany fail? Germany tried to implement what gives us uh, abstracted globalization. They tried to implement something that uh, a, a um, an initiative that gives you abstracted economic globalization from a country that is as nationalist as they come when it comes to their economy. It's very, very hard to do business in Germany if you're not German. And all you do is talk to your friends in the EU. I talk to my partners in the EU all the time. You know, Ireland, England, you know, you, you talk about if you're not if you're not German, it's next to impossible to do work in Germany. And that's why they failed. They thought they could do it themselves. The problem is they're too rigid. They're not innovative enough. That is as a on a macro level. They're too rigid. All right. Appreciate the time. Uh, like, subscribe, hit the bell down below. Uh, uh, one last quick announcement before I, I drop off here. Starting at the beginning of next year, I'm going to be reshooting the original whiteboard series. So the full whiteboard series, the one where I'm wearing a brown turtleneck. Uh, it's the first. I wasn't wearing a mic. It was when Zach tricked me into doing the whiteboard series. I'm going to be reshooting that for 2023. So it's going to be an updated version of our very first whiteboard series. We're going to start filming that uh, as soon as I get back from Christmas break. Um, if there are any other videos you would like included in that release, because we're going to sort of package them as a playlist in YouTube, please comment down below what kind of video you'd like to, us to include in that updated 2023. So it's what is IoT, what is digital transformation, all that stuff. But we're going to update it for 2023. All right. Thanks for watching, gang. Like, subscribe, and I'll see you.